I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome. So nice to be here to talk about this uh, delicious book, this delicious exercise. We're going to SA. Brian's going to SA for you. Like a, I'm going to put him on the, on the spinning wheel and just tap him. We're going to see essayism rise live in front of... Is essayism a live show? Let's find out. Um, let's, Max, let's. <laughs> okay. But also, while we're here, let's just say thank you to Fitzcarraldo, um, who in the two years they've been in existence have completely redefined the face of British literary publishing and deserve a small round of applause for doing so. And you, you must buy this book. Books are good value anyway, but Fitzgerald books are especially good value. The production values, the typesetting, the paper stock they use. It's a gorgeous physical thing, as it should be, because this is a gorgeous book inside and out. This is a very sexy book, I think, for people that like to think. Um, so I'll shut up. <laughs> Let's hear you read the bit you wanted to read, and then we'll start. We'll go for that. I'm going to start at the start, I think. Um, the book begins with a list. Um, one of the things that uh, attracts me to essays is a kind of uh, profusion, something to do with uh, order, the order that comes with a list, but also uh, the disorder um, and the sense of too much going on that comes with a list. This may go on slightly too long. It's a page and a half. I have no idea how long that is. Um, the first section of the book is called simply On Essays and Essayists. On the death of a moth, humiliation the Hoover Dam and how to write, an inventory of objects on the author's desk and an account of wearing spectacles, which he does not, what another learned about himself the day he fell unconscious from his horse, of noses, of cannibals, of method, diverse meanings of the word lumber, many vignettes published over decades in which the writer or her elegant stand-in described her condition of dislocation in the city and did it so blithely that nobody guessed it was all true a dissertation on roast pig, a heap of language, a tour of the monuments, a magazine article that in tone and structure so nearly resembles its object or conceals it that flummoxed readers depart in droves, a sentence you could whisper in the ear of a dying man, an essay upon essays, on the author's brief and oblique friendship with the great jazz singer, a treatise on melancholy, also on everything else, 
a species of drift or dissolve at the levels of logic and language that time and again requires the reader to page back in wonder, how did we get from there to here, before the writer's skill or perhaps the writer's inattention. A sermon on death, preached in the poet's final days before a picture of his own shrouded person, the metaphoric power of same. The womb a grave, the grave a whirlpool, death's hand stretched to save us. A long read, a short history of decay, a diary's prompt towards self-improvement, to sew on my buttons and button my lip. On a dancer arrayed like an insect or a ray of light, love alphabetized, life alphabetized, every second of the silent clown's appearance on screen dissected. We commit a cruelty against existence if we do not interpret it to death. On the cows outside the window, their movement, their mass, their possible emotions, what happened next will amaze you. Upon a time, a dutiful thing, set and judged by teachers, proof because proof needed of what? Compliance, competence, comprehension, proper meanness of ambition. But later, discovered in the library and under the bedclothes, sparks or scintillations, stabs at bewilderment, some effort or energy flung at the void, and style, scurrilous entertainments, a writing that's all surface, torsion, and poise, something so artful it can hardly be told from disarray, an art, among others, of a sidelong glance, obliquities, digressions, an addiction to arduous learning, a study of punctuation marks, their meaning and morality. Seven Dada manifestos, 41 false starts, the writer's technique in 13 theses, an account of what passed through the author's mind in the seconds before a stagecoach crash somewhere on the road between Manchester in the second or third summer after Waterloo, the writing of the disaster, confessions, cool memories, a collection of sand, curiosities, the philosophy of furniture, an account of the late eclipse. What was it like to fly high above the capital through silver mist and hail when flying was yet new? The answer, innumerable arrows shot at us down the august avenue of our approach. <clears throat> Sold. Um, I hope you have fans that will go through that and, and, and identify find those the essays pieces. that are real. Mm-hmm. There's a couple that are not real. There's a couple that are kind of basically imaginary uh, or, maybe, or, or maybe they're uh, ambitions. Maybe they're essays that should exist, that might exist. Maybe they do exist. Maybe other people will write them or have written them and I don't know. Um, but essentially that list is, is a list. I should say that that list is also a homage to one of my uh, most beloved short books, which is William Gass's uh, On Being Blue from the mid-70s, which starts with the most extraordinary incantatory um, sort of dirty but beautiful list of blue things and blue substances. So it's partly a homage to that, but it's also just uh, a headlong rush through pieces that excite me. And some of those come back. Some of those authors come back. There are quotations in there from Sontag and the, the last piece. The um, God, I've totally forgotten it now. It's the most extraordinary sentence. Innumerable arrows shot at us down the august avenue of our approach. So that's Wolf. One of the lovely things about this book, you're so good on gas, is it, it operates like a, like a um, wish list for people that want good writing. You, you, if you haven't, I haven't read the essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, I now will. Um, it's an incredible reading. And at times when you, 
you is, is a, if the essay is a kind of machine for self propulsion in, in bibliographic sort of um, fetishization of one's own interest, then then, then it's a, it's a kind of sweet shop that one roars through, thinking must read, must read, don't need to read. Brian's read it for me, etc. But what I've decided we're going to do, it, it's a cruel thing to do, but I think he's 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 going to be able to do it. Is that I'm just going to find bits of this book that I really liked, tell Brian what they are. He's going to read it, and then he's going to discuss it. I'm entirely in Max's hands, so let's uh, see. But sometimes I'm going to read it, because so, sometimes it's not, lo- it's not long enough okay. for you to read it, so I'm okay. just going to read this to you, okay? A combination of exactitude and evasion that seems to me to define what writing ought to be. Mm-hmm. Go. Exactitude and evasion. Well, I mean, the, the book in a way is about... Um, the things, it's about the writers that I admire. It's about the essays that I admire, as we've already uh, established. But it's also about, I suppose, tendencies that I love in other writers mm. and sort of pathetically aspire to at times uh, in my own stuff. And one of those things is surely um, precision, exactitude, getting it right, telling certain kinds of truth. And doing that partly at the level of detail. Some of, some of the later sections in the book are about precisely detail. Um, details of the physical world or details of particular essays down to you know, punctuation marks and so on that seem really important. So I love accuracy. I want accuracy. It's what, it's what I want from other writers. It's what I want from my own stuff. It's what I want from my students. Um, let's tell things that are, let's say things that are true. And at the same time, I want something else, some kind of extravagance, some kind of wandering mm-hmm. um, from the point uh, and from the, from the subject at hand elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. classically, the essay, of course, is, is, uh, is the, the quintessential genre that, uh, that digresses, that goes on adventures, um, that has, you know, sidelong, uh, takes sidelong glances, um, goes off at tangents, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And so in a way, Partly the book is, one of the things the book is about um, is a kind of tussle in my head uh, between wanting to say things that are true, mm. true to me or true in the world, and at the same time a slightly sort of ruinous um, attachment to style. Maybe we can come back to style later on, but an, an attachment to, to writing that is extravagant, um, that takes us, that, that surrounds its object with a sort of halo um, mm-hmm. of metaphor. We might have to come back to metaphor too. Um, and analogy, and that sees things always in terms of other things. The first thing you said yeah. was telling the truth. It was describing things well. Precision. Yeah. Yeah. You're not talking about a head-on precision. You announced fairly early on in this book that what, what turns you on particularly, what, what enables the fracture in, that, that is style, is slant. You say slant-wise. Uh-huh. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, I think, well, th- there's a couple, there's, there are a number of arguments about the essay that have been made, like, in, re- in recent years, mm-hmm. notably, um, by David Shields, um, and John DeGatta, um, in the US, that have to do either with saying the, the great value of the essay and the great value of, like, non-fiction to us now is either, as Shields says, that it absolutely sticks to mm-hmm. the real as mm-hmm. such, or as John DeGatta says, that the freedom of the essay is that it can borrow from fiction and it can tell Untruths, in a way, he's he's got himself into big arguments uh, about that. I don't agree with either of them. Um, I want something that's in between. I don't want the essay to invent. You know, to to very often defences of of the essay today are about um, 
a sense that that it can borrow from fiction, that that the essay, that nonfiction is somehow the new fiction. Mm. I don't want essays to tell me untruths. I want them to get things right. That means that there is still the most extraordinary array of artifice, of technique, of style, um, of diversions and digressions that are possible in the service of that truth. And so I think of this, sometimes when I'm writing, I think of things purely in, in like spatial mm. terms. I think, what am I aiming for in like the tone of this? And I think of it as like a line of attack, you know, mm. as like, or a trajectory. It's coming from somewhere. Um, and so I suppose that's what I mean by slantwise. And the, the great essays for me um, are the ones that are somehow in between mm-hmm. in that way. Ob- obliquity seems like to me like a literary value. Yeah. We, you talk about this a bit later in the context of aphorism, which I hope we'll get to. There's a lot of things we've got to get to, right? Style, you said aphorism. But you're, you're, what you're talking about is rigour in perfect harmony with a, with, with a sort of flamboyance or a, a, a sort of... Perfect harmony explosion. would be nice, wouldn't it? But I don't think perfect harmony happens. Well, uncanny harmony. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. the harmony of the, of the fracture in the... What's the quote that he uses the epigraph, the book, the, the Carlos Williams? Um, the... Uh, Oh Lord! The it is not only is it necessary to prove the crystal, but the crystal must prove perfect by fracture. Mm. Yeah. Okay, we're moving on. We're moving on. Oh, th- this is a little long, a longer section, so perhaps okay. you would read in, in yep. your lovely t- that little paragraph and then, and then that bit because you'll see what I'm trying to get. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, okay. Can I go back to the start of that paragraph? If you must. <laughs> It's just it's a slightly odd place to start, Max. It's just that I've underlined okay. what I consider to be the best of the work. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm going back to the start of the paragraph. It's only two lines. What exactly do I mean, even, by style? Perhaps it's nothing but an urge, an aspiration, a clumsy access of admiration, a crush. On what? The very idea. Form and texture rescued from chaos, the precision and extravagance of it, the daring, in the end, the distance, such as I think I could never attain. As much in a person, as in a body, as in prose. These people who can keep it together. I like your style means I admire, dear human, what you have clawed back from sickness and pain and madness. And Max jumps to for his own idiosyncratic reasons. (laughs) Undone by detail, the whole edifice of authorial expression or confidence turned against itself, all in disarray and yet always fretted by the ghosts of logic and form, now lost. What are you thinking? There's so so much I love in this. Uh, Let us begin chronologically. This is interesting. The precision and extravagance, the daring, in the, in the end, the distance. It's interesting you're thinking in terms yeah. of, always of this sort of sculptural position mm-hmm. of the author and the distance they have to travel. And then you say, such as I think I could never attain. Yeah. And it's not the only time in this book that you present a, a, a self-deprecating um, essayist, a, a Brian Dillon who is not necessarily the Brian Dillon writing this book, but is the essayist Brian Dillon needing to include a something, which is vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. Which we won't put any spoilers in, but it's ultimately love. Love for the form and love for mm. writing and love for looking at the world in the way we might look at pictures. Mm. Talk about this, though, that you might you could never attain. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think there's a sort of erotic, a sort of jouissance of the unattainable in other people's style that you're trying to get to yourself? Yeah, totally. I always feel that. Um, how French. I, how fr- <laughs> no, I, that's unusual. 
Is it? I don't know. I don't know how other people think about style and think about other writers' voices. I always, um, I don't feel, I've, I've never felt, you know, Bloom's like anxiety of influence. Um, I don't feel crushed by the weight of uh, the prose of, let us say, Roland Barthes or Joan Didion or Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, so I don't have that sort of like Bloomian Oedipal struggle no. with them. Um, but there is something to do with fascination and admiration mm. and a sense that um, here is something that I couldn't attain, but maybe I can, maybe there's a facsimile of this, maybe there's a mm. version of this that one can fashion um, that does something. Um, I'm, I, I don't know, again, I, I, I don't often talk to writer friends about the, the kind of nitty gritty of how you hear the voice mm. when you're writing. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing not to talk to too many people uh, about it. But I certainly hear, like, sentences from all of those people. Um, I, I have these things in my mind. And, yeah, there is a certain weight of that. Um, and it's difficult and it's painful. And but it's almost like a problem-solving exercise then, the writing of sentences for you. The sort of agony, not the anxiety of influence, but the sort of agony of cohabitation with the people that have written sentences before you. That's just a disciplinary thing, isn't it? But it's also quite charming. It's also quite... There's also a, there's something... I mean, I'm going to just skip forward here. Mm-hmm. This friend walks you down a passage. Do you want to read that little bit? It's gorgeous, this. Oh, right, okay. Do you see how yes. I'm, do you see yeah. what I'm, I'm yeah. trying to get yeah. you to be really confessional in an interesting so way? So this is... <laughs> in an interesting way. Yeah. Um, so this is, this, this is a passage um, uh, which is in the context of talking about uh, a period uh, not too long ago in my life, li- living alone uh, by the sea um, and finding a certain kind of like disarray in this landscape um, and, uh, and situation and remembering something else, remembering a, an image. I hardly ever travelled that stretch of seafront without thinking of a street, more of an alley really, in Dublin. I cannot name it now, nor even recall where it is, except to say somewhere on the north side, between the city centre and Fibsborough, the last district I lived in before leaving Ireland in my mid-twenties. In the months before I left, another time of my life when I lay awake most nights filled with fear, I often walked home from town with a friend in the early hours of the morning. He would insist on those occasions, grey ghosts for me of the joyous white nights it seemed we'd spent just a few months before, that we detoured along this lane and paused to take in the spectacle he'd noticed one night while walking home alone. It was simply this. A chance combination of street lights, rain and broken glass meant the street was strewn with winking lights as we walked, a constellation of points in the near dark that remade itself with every second tiny stars and others being born as we moved through the field. It was a scintillating gift from the city at night, a ready-made planetarium upended among the drifting litter and the oil-stained nebulae of the street. I remember thinking, I wish I were the sort of person who notices such things unprompted. I do see where you're going. Yeah. Well, I love this paragraph because... One of the things you're doing, and it's a joke, is that you are one of those people. You do notice things unprompted, and here is a book full of such things. Mm-hmm. And so you're asking us to sort of indulge you in a moment of criticism that is not valid, because we're in the middle of your wonderful observations, which I love. There's a sort of there's a sort of um, there's a sort of flirtation there with mm-hmm. the reader's sensibility, which I really like. But also, um, 
it is in tone and style so Sebaldian, and you're about mm-hmm. to introduce us to mm-hmm. your crush on Sebald. Mm-hmm. So the way that Brian Fred's memoir into this book, among the more analytical work, is 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 a sort of you're aware of what your different ingredients are, and you're you're, you're threading them in in just the right moment, so that before we get to Sebald, we we have had this little moment, sorry, this sort of influence yeah. let loose on the page. Yeah. That passage is, is also about like a real sense when I was um, in my mid-twenties and, and the only things I'd ever written were academic. Mm. Um, and I was writing about people like Bart and Walter Benjamin and Giorgio Agamben. And all, I had a sort of attraction to like the more elegant side, I suppose, mm. in mm. retrospect, I now realise, um, of European theory. And realizing at some point, like halfway through a PhD, that I just didn't notice the world. Mm. I didn't see things around me. And my friends, like the friend who led me down this lane one night, one drunken night coming back from the city center, my friend was this person who noticed stuff. And so that's partly about this kind of terrible envy for people who were actually connected with the world at that Mm. point, because I wasn't. I was just buried in all of this stuff and wondering where the hell it might ever lead me. While we're on this subject and you mentioned European writers, would you talk a little bit about the English or, if you want to, the Irish? I don't mind which. Talk a little bit about but the about English. Your, especially yeah. the time you're writing this. You're talking about yeah. reading NME and you're talking about the, yeah. your, your first crushes on journalism and style and yeah. then Bach. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I wrote um, last year, last, in fact, uh, almost exactly a year ago, um, the morning after the Brexit vote, um, Freeze magazine, the art magazine, uh, called me up and asked me to, to write something in response. And the only thing that I could think to write uh, was to say something about the fact that as a teenager growing up in Dublin, my introduction to European culture mm. was through English Europhiles. Mm. And the English Europhiles who were my first influences as writers were music critics, um, people like Paul Morley at the NME and his colleague Ian Penman, who now writes these extraordinary pieces for, for the LRB, um, introduced me to everybody from Genet to Barthes to Fassbinder, Godard, um, etc. It was a particular canon. You can look back and see that it was kind of quite limited. It was quite limited in terms of gender, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it, it was a sort of opening onto to something else. And... Maybe there's always for an Irish um, writer or just for Irish people a sort of tension in how you think about your relationship with European culture, with art and literature and, uh, and, and, and film and so on, that very often it's filtered through those English kind of exemplars, those people who have seen outside of their culture, but are at the same time, because those writers are all, all writing, we're all writing, uh, a kind of journalistic demotic that I think was also mm-hmm. a real thing that I was attracted to at the time, and still am. I mean, one of the things this book is, is about is, is the fact that what it, if it describes anything, if there is a thing called essayism, um, it doesn't only come from those perfectly formed uh, Bart essays or the, the exquisitely arranged fragments of Minima Moralia or whatever. It arises out of like music magazines and fashion magazines and newspapers and blogs and wherever. Or even music and fashion. Yeah. Would you talk about pop and art? Because this is, in some respects, a piece of art. It's, it's, it's a gesture to performance in art and performativity of, of, of art theory and in your teaching work, your professional work in, that, in an institution where you're asking people to think quite carefully about theory and practice. 
This is a gesture, isn't it? Would you talk a little is bit it? about wow, that? Is it? Wow, that's really interesting. Is it I, not? It, I, not, it not, not well, not consciously. Maybe it is. Um, Perhaps I'm it, thinking that I'm obsessed comes, with this sort of this this, um, this thing I was telling you about, you know, Mark Armand and the, and the performance of, of flamboyance, as you say, and, and, and of style. Yeah, I mean, I think that the yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm saying I I didn't set out for it to be that, but I can see as soon as you say it that um, one of the things I could have done in this book, I suppose, was to write about you know film essays and photo essays and to, to think about the way that the essay. Uh, especially a sort of first-person essay influenced uh, most obviously by people like Chris Marker, um, is such a sort of dominant form uh, in contemporary art. And I decided I really didn't want to do that. I would only write about writing. Um, but maybe it is describing something, um, a certain sort of liberty when it comes to writing, for a start, that exists among artists today um, mm-hmm. and in the art world. Um, it is also probably, yes, indebted to an idea of style that is absolutely not, you know, it's not only coming out of, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I pour over sentences in Zabald or whoever endlessly. Max told me earlier that he, he read a single sentence. Who was the single sentence by? Uh, the, for two hours, for two hours, he studied this sentence. And that's exactly the kind of thing I would do. On the other hand... Studied. Drunk a bit of tea, <laughs> thought about it. Yeah. You, would, you, would, you would study it in, in um, better ways than I would. I don't know. I just worry. Right. Worried the sentence. Worrying things like a sheepdog. Um, the idea of style is also, obviously, I now realize, indebted to uh, an idea of uh, subcultural style mm-hmm. that is totally of part of my literary and cultural education, um, especially in the 80s. So it has something to do with an idea of extravagance, an idea of a sort of dandyism. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about our mutual friend Michael Bracewell, um, wonderful critic and especially writer about art, and he's totally tuned in Mm -hmm. to that connection. He sees those connections between uh, especially English and especially London fashion, music, uh, youth culture, and a sort of high, a sort of Mandarin version of, of modernism, a kind of like mid-century yeah. dandyism. Yeah. That, and that's totally English. Which lets English working class experience in, or yeah. different topographical issues to yeah. do with where we live yeah. in the world. Yeah. But you, you said earlier on, I think something about an aura. That, that, that seems to be a sentence-level thing. You can give a thing a glow that almost can't be... I don't, you, you can't... You can't forensically tease a sentence apart and say which elements would have given it that glow. Mm-hmm. But you in this book come quite close to doing that <laughs> with Hardwick. Can we talk about Oh, this? yeah. Yeah, let's talk Go about on. Hardwick. The, the analysis you do of her sentences, the, seam, you, the seamlessness and its subversion, that couple thing. But this was the bit, I think, here, that this thing about her sentences here. Is that a good bit to read or do you want oh, to yeah, go back? Oh, yeah, sure. Do you want the paragraph? I think in a way... It's the bit where you talk about her comma in the in the... Oh, shall I see if I can find the comma? Is it the Stalin Thomas deathbed thing? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, Maybe I should just read you the the great sentence from Elizabeth Hardwick. Can we have Elizabeth Hardwick, not me, for a second? Um, This is from this uh, amazing essay that Hardwick wrote about um, Dylan Thomas and and was published uh, in her collection of View of My Own in 1962. Um, There's a big collection of Elizabeth Hardwick's essays um, coming in October from New York Review Books. Um, I hope this is in it. He died grotesquely like Valentino, with mysterious weeping women at his bedside. His last months, his final agonies, his utterly woeful end, were a sordid and spectacular drama of broken hearts, angry wives, irritable doctors, frantic bystanders, 
rumors and misunderstandings, neglect and murderous permissiveness. The people near him visited indignities upon themselves, upon him, upon others. There seems to have been a certain amount of competition at the bedside, assertions of obscure priority. The horrors were more and more vague, confused by the ghastly suffering needs of this broken host and his final impersonality. My God, she's amazing. <laughs> she's extraordinary. Read us some of and your dismantling of that, would you? Dismantling is not the word. Um, Sorry. Pure awe. Um, I'm interested in the comma in the first sentence. Let me give you the first sentence again. He died, comma, grotesquely like Valentino, comma, with mysterious weeping women at his bedside. But isn't there something peculiar about the placing of that first comma? When I read the essay for the first time, and reading it now, I have to remind myself that this is not what it says. I thought Dylan Thomas had died grotesquely, like Valentino. But that is not it, or not quite. The grotesquerie belongs not to the death itself, or not only, but to the resemblance in death. Sorry, in death, Thomas was grotesquely like Valentino. The distinction might seem subtle, hardly worth making, except I suspect Hardwick of pausing over the comma's placement, suddenly aware that the mere parallel of the two deaths, poet and silent star, both loved by many women, though the poet a little more bafflingly, was not enough. What truly appalled was the fact that one could, in fact must, set these men alongside one another in the first place. In the condensed scenography of the opening sentence, in other words, it's not just Dylan Thomas's fame and his womanizing that Hardwick wishes to remark, but the fact the poet courted such an end in his private and public life and squandered his talents at the last in personal melodrama. Further, Hardwick knows, must know, that reeling the comma back a notch doesn't rid us of the expected sense, the one I'd mistakenly settled for at first. She gets to have the seamlessness and its subversion. Oh, I love that, Brian. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad, Max. I think that's most gorgeous. We've got to crack on because there's something that we've, we've got to discuss uh, and then we'll have questions from the audience. I wanted to talk to you about TJ Clark. Oh, yes. Um, well, we're going to miss out Kitsch, but it's very interesting on Kitsch and it's very interesting on aphorism this, but I was thinking at a certain point what you're suggesting to us is that we need to look at the right, is that the essay is like looking at a picture and, and, and often you need to look at what, what might, the magic of the essay arising might be that you have looked at life and waited. Yeah. For these accidents, these currents, yeah. these glows, yeah. these, gli- these, these things to creep in. And you, you, you bring us to T.J. Clark. Yeah. I don't know quite on what page. Um, I think it's easy to find because it's a, it's a because, set-off quote. It's because on, I remember yeah. being so inspired by that as a person who had to look at a lot of art at certain stage mm. in my life. That you keep on looking, particularly with, with, with work that is loaded with social documentary implications and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You keep on looking. Mm-hmm. And a detail is not a detail. A detail is a sort of gateway to what gives away... Uh, would, do you know what bit I'm talking about? Yes, it's on page 121. Could you um, go for it? It's, on, it's a section on attention. Um, shall I start reading that section and then give you T.J. Clark? Um, that page? Yeah? Is Please. that too much? And then what, this was the thing I really wanted to ah, get right. to. Ah, right, okay. Know, That's at the end of the section. The sort of proposition. Yeah, give, give us a bit of T.J. Clark. Well, this is a, a passage um, from... Uh, I'll, let's, let's, I'll read my own stuff, shall I? I'll give you the paragraph. I think it's on on attention. I think the essays I most admire are those that pay the minutest or most sustained attention to one thing, one time or place, one strain or strand of existence. An essay that performs its mode of attention even better. 
Sometimes this entails a framing of the act of attending to the world, a moment at which the author announces that he or she is the sort of person, for better or worse, to engage in sustained or intense scrutiny, to narrow things down to this or that minute portion of the world. Here is the art critic T.J. Clarke in the opening pages of his book The Sight of Death, preparing the ground for a protracted effort of looking at a pair of Poussin paintings. Many of us, maybe all of us, look at some images repeatedly, but it seems we do not write that repetition or think it, once written, worth reading by others. Maybe we deeply want to believe that images happen, essentially or sufficiently, all at once. Maybe the actual business of repeated gawping strikes us as embarrassing, at least when set out in sentences. Too passive, too privileged, too rudimentary, too male. I'll stop the quote there. It's quite long, or relatively long. But Clark is engaged in this lengthy day after day, going back to the same one, two, in fact, Poussin paintings, and simply waiting for them to go to work on him. Um, and it's partly a, a, it's partly an act that is so deliberate, but it's, it's, it's deliberately framing a moment of naivety and of openness and of vulnerability. Um, this section of the, uh, the book ends like this. This is one curious effect of the essay as experiment in attention. It invariably departs from the objects at hand to enter realms of speculation and even fantasy because that's the liberty that such attention allows. We're back in the purview and power of the list, but not only that, also a commitment to the deadpan unfolding of ordinary time and things. Could you make an essay simply out of the things to hand at the moment you started to come back to life, the photographs, the half-remembered images, the books and fragments that are not yet books? Um, And I'm thinking as well in, in that section about people like Perec and his attempt to exhaust a place in Paris, simply sitting and looking out the window of the cafe uh, and so on. So yes, it's partly about waiting. It was one of the only times in the book when I, I was sort of thrown out of this book into your earlier work, other work, other essays I've written by you and reviews as well. And you have been relatively straight in this book, formally, stylistically, in order to do some of the things that you've tried to do with the juxtaposition of these short pieces. But you don't do any of the kind of trickery that I've seen at work in some of your earlier pieces. You know, very abrasive switches of um, narrative voice and or list apart from the list. This is yeah. what sort of thought. Do you think essayism needed needed these short sections? Did you try it as a continuation? Did, did this did this emerge because you're saying right now you're doing these short pieces about sentences? Mm. Is that how this grew, or did this grow from the memoir? Um, it it just grew. Um, it's, it's the one book I've ever written that I didn't plan properly. Um, or it felt to me like I wasn't planning it properly. Usually I can't write anything without a really detailed plan. We were talking earlier about drafts and pe- people who write really terrible drafts of their writing and then rework it and rework it. Um, that seems like terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to plan things to an insane degree, then just write the bastard. And then maybe it gets retyped or, you know, the editing happens later. But I can't conceive of the idea of drafting things. And so I have to plan. But in this case, I didn't. It, it, there was a list of topics. And it just seemed, I suppose, that um, a book about the essay should not be a book of essays, but a book in essays. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of naturally presented itself as a series of, of fragments, mm-hmm. um, of short passages. Um, it's interesting you say that it's not tricky. I don't think it's tricky. <laughs> um, but I wonder what that difference is from other, other things. I can't quite hear it. I wonder whether it's my, um, the, the, the various probably sub, 
subconscious ways in which one reads a piece that has been commissioned. Mm. Uh, a piece that I know has been asked of you in relation to Sophie Cal or, or, or so it's obvious when you're breaking the frame of that and you're you're sort of messing with the well it's the play it's play made it, right. visible yeah. for ways that, yeah. that tickle a person accustomed to a certain type of writing about critical writing about culture. Can we talk about love and particularly uh-huh. Roland Barthes? Because we can there is, there is always, a lovely moment you arrive talk about in this Barthes. book where you yeah. sort of say actually this isn't this isn't I don't want to be satisfied by this thing I don't want to be pleased I want to be in love. And, and uh-huh. it's, it's, in, in your story of how you came to write this way, um, it's a story of recovery in some mm-hmm. sense, isn't it? It's, it's an epiphany. Would you give us a bit of... Where, where is... Oh, God, I don't know. I've written his name in a post-it note. Where Here is he is. The... Page 108. Okay. It was the first time I read one of my intellectual heroes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yes. So th- this is actually... Um, it's the summer of 1991, um, and the author is in Paris with his friends, being extraordinarily pretentious and hanging out at um, Shakespeare and Co. Um, hanging out on the Rue Descartes, actually, hoping to catch a glimpse of Derrida as he, as he, as he passed in or out of the Collège International de Philosophie. It's highly unlikely. Did you? No, no. Um, and I went to Shakespeare and Co., and I bought um, Gertrude Stein's How to Write. I was reading How to Write when I went to Paris and fancied myself. Um, no, I didn't. I bought it just before. I bought it in Dublin. <laughs> I, was, I, was reading, I was reading How to Write when I went to Paris and fancied myself very smart indeed. On my last day, when I browsed in the bookshop and bought a copy in English of Bart's Camera Lucida. I read it on the plane home, racing through it with the same excitement with which I'd read Bart five or six years before. But my theoretical thrills... There are sentences underlined here too, and marks in the margins such as Proust, question mark. I had not yet read Proust. Were shadowed by something else, something new. It was the first time I had read one of my intellectual, essayistic heroes and made any sort of connection with my own life, with my own losses. As my plane touched down in Dublin and for days afterwards, I read and reread passages from Camera Lucida, shuttling back and forth between my supposedly pure intellectual interest in Barthes' theories, which are not theories, regarding photography, and the grief and remembrance that the book turns out really to be all about. It's so predictable, such a familiar reference point, that I almost wish I might never read the book again and could pretend it had never happened to me. But if pushed, I would have to say that Camera Lucida is the book that made me, the book without which, etc., Gorgeous. I think we have to have audience. Que- we we yep. want. We want audience questions. I think we do. May I, as, yep. as, as um, payment for me doing this event, yep. apart from the gin and tonics and the you know the lifelong friendship you promised me and all that mm. stuff, can I read the last sentence in the book? Oh sure. Yeah. This is Brian quoting William Carlos Williams in his essay on Virginia. This is such... I've even drawn a little thumbs up. I was satisfied. <laughs> it, is, it is pretty good. Often there will appear some heirloom, like the cut glass jelly stand that Jefferson brought back from Paris for his daughter, a branching tree of crystal hung with glass buckets that would be filled with jelly on occasion. This is the essence of all essays. It's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> the, the, the essay is this glittering kitsch terrible object that you imagine it sort of turning, you know, like a lazy Susan, and it's got jam. He means jam, right? It's got jam in it. 
That's just, the essence of essays. If I ever want to reject a collection of essays, I'm just going to say there was no jelly in mm. the uh, hanging mm. glass baskets. Mm. For me, at least. Yeah. Um, gorgeous. What a pleasure to hear you think and speak. Um, let's have some questions. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Brent, I've got a question for you. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Um, If you're writing something and you have a particular style of writing and it's all fact but you've had to change from things for the legal things is it better to say it's it's fiction or would you would you say it's an essay oh my lord is it is it better or, or, or yeah. can it be both um i think i don't know i've never written anything where i had to change things for legal reasons okay. names and dates and places and so on i think you would just say names and dates and places have been changed okay. Okay. you know um, I think that those kinds of uh, addenda, those those sorts of uh, disclaimers or claimers, whatever they are, um, are perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that. Um, that's what. I, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a difference between that um, slight stepping aside from the facts and the kind of almost fictional or purely or in fact outrightly fictional. Liberty that somebody like John Degata claims for the for the essay. So yeah, and are, are you tempted towards fiction? Um, I think there's a tiny book over there on the right there. That's that's the extent of my my foray so far into uh, into fiction. Bit cheeky, short book like that, isn't it? Can't <laughs> imagine such a thing. There's one at the back there. <laughs> uh, sort of leading on from the question of essay essayism and, and fiction and arriving at the truth askance, so to speak. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about essayism in the context of, well, maybe speculative essayism. I'm thinking here of um, like Stanislav Lem's collection of reviews of books that don't exist, although some of them exist as parodies, some of them are speculative books that can't exist, um, which in some ways maybe is a sort of formal exercise, but... um, yeah. At the same time, you could yeah. see it as sort of trying to reach some kind of truth, although maybe that's a sort of platonic conceit. But um, could you talk about that a little bit? Um, I'm not sure that I can talk about it in, ter- in the terms of like a s- speculative essay as something that like invents a possible world, for example. I don't know that that's quite my 
thing. I think that there's a, a long lineage of, um, of essays that invent... Um, okay, I'll give you an example, and it's in the book, um, and it's uh, Sir Thomas Brown's Museum Clausum, which is a, a list, essentially, um, a fictional museum, a fictional cabinet of curiosities that invents a world made up of... Oh, can we, can we remember these things? You know, uh, tears of Hadrian's bedroom. A neat crucifix <laughs> made out of the crossbone of a frog's head. A large agate containing various and a various and careless figure, which looked upon by a cylinder, representeth a perfect centaur. Uh, a ring found in a fish's belly, taken about Goro, conceived to be the same wherewith the Duke of Venice had wedded the sea. I love that historical version of the essay that is about the kind of construction of a of a world in microcosm um so yeah i guess that there is a there is a more forward projecting version of that uh a science fiction version of that even um you come back a few times in the book to the theme or the kind of subject of consolation and i wondered whether that was another whether that was also an unplanned element of the book because sometimes it feels like it might almost be a sort of motivating principle or factor. Yeah, I think it, it was unplanned. The, the, the book is divided into named sections, all of which say on something, on sentences, on melancholy, on the fragment, etc. Um, and the one fragment that, or the one title that repeats itself um, is on consolation. And I didn't plan it, but it became kind of obvious as I was writing that there were very personal reasons why I was writing about this literary form. And they're not only to do with kind of professional writerly interest or scholarly interest or just readerly uh, love or admiration for these things. There was something to do with uh, a realization that at certain points in my life, I had had a complicated relationship with certain kinds of nonfiction writers. That's putting it, non-fic- nonfiction is a horrible term. But they were philosophers, journalists, memoirists, etc. And that I had either at times kind of imagined that these writers would save me. Um, I've written about this before with, with Bart, that somehow he would get me out of the, the hell of my late teens. My mother died when I was in my, my mid-teens and my dad at, at, at the end of that decade. And I now sort of realized that a sort of massive uh, commitment to something called theory, and especially to Bart, was, was a way both of describing that to myself, but also stepping aside from it. And I realized as I was writing this that there had been these moments where it seemed there was some kind of relationship going on there. Um, when I first, when I, when I had finished this, but it wasn't yet out, I read... Um, some of it uh, at a conference, at a symposium. Um, and uh, I shan't name the writer, but somebody said uh, that my commitment to style in the book and a certain kind of tone in the book was sentimental. Um, and I think that that's... Um, it was Deborah Levy. It was Deborah Levy. <laughs> Bless her. Um, who came to the launch last night um, and uh, I hope likes the book, the finished product. But I think she's right. Um, the, the book is partly about something to do with um, a slightly kind of uh, damaged and damaging attachment to the extent to which writing can get you out of these things. But also 
The other side of that is that I think, and one of the, there isn't an argument in this book, but if it, one of its kind of sub-topics, uh, and maybe there is an argument in this, but sort of unstated, is to do with the history of the essay on melancholia and depression. Um, and so one of the things that happens in these on-consolation sections is, is an attempt to describe moments in my life where depression has been accompanied by certain kinds of reading. And I'm just interested to know what that reading is. So it might be Bart, but it might equally be uh, 20 years ago, uh, you know, lying awake at 4 a.m. reading Lester Bangs, Lester Bangs writing about Lou Reed or something. And I'm just interested to know what, what are these modes of writing that somehow feel consoling at moments like that. Um, we can, it's easy sometimes to talk about poetry, say, in those terms, but there are profundities and consolations in the most kind of fugitive types of nonfiction um, also, I think. I mean, even the way you talked about that comma, Elizabeth Hardwick's comma earlier, there is a kind of consolation of close reading and, mm-hmm. and close analysis that is, that is comforting as well as... But is it too, slightly too comforting? I mean, that, I suppose that's one of the things that I had in mind with the book as well. Is, is, it, is it slightly too comforting, this like attachment to well-made things? Not when you've set it out, I think, in the context you have done here. Mm. The fracture. There was another question. Just now. I wonder if this is a related question, but I think you began your list on page one with Virginia Woolf's Death of the Moth. Yes. And why begin there? Why was that important? I honestly have to say that one of the reasons was because I liked the sound of On the Death of a Moth, Humiliation, the Hoover Dam, and How to Write. Um, but I do know that I also wanted, uh, I think that, that was the first, I wrote the first page first. When, in a book of sort of short fragments, you wouldn't necessarily write the first page first, but I did. Um, and Wolf was really the, the starting point um, for me once I sat down and started to write. And I kind of wanted it to begin um, with three women essayists as well, for some reason. Um, and so Wolf, um, humiliation is Wayne Kestenbaum, but uh, Didion uh, and Stein... Um, I was very aware when I started writing the book that, that I could easily write something that's about all of those much more canonical figures that I'd been reading when I was younger. And it was, um, it was sort of important to, to start with her. Um, she, she comes back really quickly in the book. Um, so she begins and ends, Wolf, um, that long list. Um, the quotation at the end, innumerable arrows shot at us down the august avenue of our approach, is from her amazing essay, Flying Over London, from 19... 19- 28. Um, so that's, sorry, that's not really answering your question except to say, you know, the, the book starts out of like affinities and love and she was the first, the first I thought of. And, 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 and out of the jump, uh, out of the miracle of 80, of, of 26, 86, how many letters are there in the alphabet? 26. Um, you know, random keys, out, out mm-hmm. come symphonies and I think Wolf is, mm-hmm. is, is the exemplar, isn't it? Yeah. That, that is a sentence that lifts the, the spirit. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. There's two questions sure, here. Yep. Um, I, really, I really love that idea of consolation, so thank you for that. I don't have to be but I, I, wanted to ask, I wanted to ask about uh, sort of another thematic, which would be um, what you think about writers who kind of return because of the urgency of a particular moment or a particular time and place. So, for example, right now in America, Baldwin 
He's yeah. making a return. Um, you know, the opening essay to Richard Wright, the Richard Wright book, um, Angela Davis, people like that. Just wondered if you, what you thought about that, and whether you had other writers that you thought kind of spoke in that way to some particular yeah. thing going on in the larger culture. Yeah, I think yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's it's especially obvious with uh, with Baldwin. I think um, just to kind of talk about writers who I who I address in in the book. Um, I think that Maeve Brennan, um, that sort of return of Maeve Brennan uh, as a writer, um, forgotten for decades, really, um, is really interesting in that regard. I mean, I love her fiction. The fiction is very sort of precise and uh, elegantly made and so on. But the really exciting thing about her is is the long-winded lady pieces that she wrote for The New Yorker, describing the city, describing these extraordinary moments of, of dislocation uh, in the city. And those, it seems speak to something now about uh, about a maybe it's not only a, an experience of the city but there's a there's something about the way that she tackles detail um, that seems absolutely of the now and the passage that I talk about in the book is from a piece that when the those essays were republished is titled broccoli it wouldn't have had a title originally in the, in the New Yorker in 1962. She finds herself uh, in a restaurant in the middle of the afternoon, um, alone, as, as she usually is, and ordering her lunch and a side order of broccoli. And she realizes when the broccoli arrives um, that she, she says, I could not remember which end of the broccoli to eat first. Um, and that just opens up so much of a kind of sense of like mental pain and disarray um, that's just extraordinary. So I think, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is, is those mid-century, uh, they turn out to be mostly American and they turn out to be mostly women. Hardwick is the other uh, kind of dominant one in, in the book, whose attention to that kind of detail is just extraordinary. Maybe that seems kind of woefully apolitical at some degree, but I don't think so. I, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and with 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 Baldwin, with some, I was going to say somebody like Baldwin. There is nobody like Baldwin. But with with Baldwin, the there must be a kind of urge to a, a question: like, what would the what would today's language be? Would it be possible to have a language today that would be so precise, so extraordinarily persuasive, so kind of lofty but authentic? Um, and so Baldwin, maybe for better and worse, kind of stands in for the absence of that language now. Um, so one of the sections in your book that I like the most and really stood out to me in quite a startling way is when you talk about deconstruction, particularly with theory, and seeing something almost at the point of collapse. I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that, and particularly about the form of the essay. Perhaps that's something you can push to the point of collapse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if everybody could hear it. Um, so that. it's quite quiet. It's a, yeah. Um, so, yes, there's a passage where I talk about... Um, Theory with a capital T. It used to have a capital T. Um, and uh, for me as a student, the, the really exciting people were, you know, Bart's kind of obvious. Um, Derrida is obvious too, but I was particularly, I suppose, interested in Derrida in 
something to do with, you know, we were taught deconstruction as students in the late 80s, as if it was a method, you know, as if, as if you could apply this thing called theory to, to literary texts, and they would somehow just kind of like come apart and, and reveal something, something else, something they didn't want to say. And that seemed kind of terribly attractive, but much more attractive, much more interesting was how that happened at the level of Derrida's sentences and language. Um, and that it was a protracted, long, laborious process of reading, of really close reading. And so he still stands for me. I, I hardly ever read him. I hardly ever go back to him. But it's obvious once I start to think about it that he formed for me something of my notion of what writing is in the first place, that, you, that, that there are these... The way I describe it in the book is... Um, I used to have in my mind when I was reading Derrida this, this kind of image of a sort of elaborate structure, possibly wooden, sort of baroque, um, beautifully made and very, very slowly shaking itself to pieces. Um, and that seemed kind of terribly attractive, but also philosophically important. I was completely, you know, invested uh, in it as a, as a philosophical set of propositions as well. But I think that the attraction was also just sort of aesthetic. Did you rebel against it at a certain point? Did you have an anti-theory period? Um, I don't know about anti-theory. Um, I remember quite precisely the moment where I, I decided I couldn't possibly be an academic. Mm. And it had quite a lot to do with the fact that nobody wanted me to be an academic. <laughs> um, nobody wanted to give me a job. Um, and what I realised was that the, the attraction to theory in that period, and I'm talking about sort of 25 years ago, was was a fulfillment of the things that I had been thrilled by as a teenager in people I'd been reading then, which included Bart, but also included all of these like, music writers and Sontag uh, and Germaine Greer, you know, Ger Greer's essays at the end of the 80s in The Mad Woman's Underclothes, and lots of feminist writers of that mm. period that, that one read when you were like 16. Um, and I realized that actually, or I hoped, that there was something else, that you could use all of that intellectual excitement mm. that went under the name of theory in the academy, and you could recall, you could remind theory that it was connected to these other things, that mm. it was connected to music journalism and street, you know, pop culture and, mm. and all of these things. And, and so I, at some point I thought, no, stop, start writing book reviews, mm. you know, see what you can do with that. What happens if you try and write like a book review for Time Out? They were that length. There were 250 words. What happens if you try and do that? So it was a, an escape partly, I think, into form and a realization that actually um, I like forms and deadlines. And, and, and maybe making a living. And, and the other thing. That, that, that so, thing. And I, I gave yeah. up on psychoanalytic theory because I actually realized that people telling me their dreams was just the shittest thing in the world and I couldn't bear it. And I needed a job. There's time for one more question. Someone was very keen earlier. I have a question about the relationship between writing and teaching. Mm. Um, I've had an experience sometimes with my students where when I'm trying to get them to think about the essay as a literary form, there's a kind of interesting moment of confusion and misunderstanding, and you can see in their faces this kind of horror of the idea that there's a literary form that's related to their essays, so that the things that they have to dutifully write in order to you know, past the modules. Mm. And so in response to that, 
you know, I sort of disentangle, I have to sort of disentangle the essay as a literary form from the essay as the thing that we do when we're learning and passing tests, etc. Yeah. But of course, they're not completely disentangleable. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the relationship between the essay that students write yeah. and the essay as a literary form, but also to hear more about what you see the relationship being between your own writing and your own practice as a teacher. Mm. Um, it's hard for me to think about it except in the terms that we were describing earlier, that sense of like having, you know, crushes, admirations uh, on particular writers. So I think that um, for me, I remember like writing undergraduate essays and thinking, I've suddenly realized how you do this. You just pretend to be Roland Barthes or Frank Kermode or, you know, Harold Bloom or whatever, and that will work. And it's like hopelessly pretentious and naive, but it was also a realization that actually this is a form. Um, I think that in teaching, um, I don't, at some t- I, I honestly, in a way, don't know what teaching is. Um, I think that what I do and what my colleagues do, uh, I teach at the Royal College of Arts, so I, I teach writing to people who are writers, but also in the context that they might be artists or they might be art critics or they might come from any number of disciplines. And I think we just, I don't know what we do. I'm sorry. We focus on uh, everything from the comma, where does the comma go? Why is the comma there? Um, to what are our big responsibilities as writers, as humans in the world, ethically, politically, aesthetically. Um, and the most exciting thing for me is the moment where we're stuck somewhere in the middle of a piece of non-fiction writing that might be uh, T.J. Clark, but it might equally be, um, you know, Gay Talese's piece on Frank Sinatra from 1960, whatever it was. Um, and we don't really know what this thing is doing, you know. Um, I think for me, teaching is always about having one eye on... Um, on wanting to say, wanting to encourage people to think, this thing is well-made. I'm a person who could make well-made things. And I don't think that that often is, is something that is said to students, um, uh, to university students. And on the other hand, um, how can I get lost inside this object and inside my own form? Um, and that sounds terribly trite, but I think that off, the first thing is, is often at least in my experience years ago, te- teaching um, in a university for the first time, it's like somehow disappears the sense that your students are critics, they are intellectuals, they are, they're also public intellectuals because they're in a public institution. They, have, they ought to be encouraged to think the things I write have a form and that form matters inside this institution and also outside this in- institution. That's horribly vague. Um, Brian, what a pleasure to hear you speaking in this, in this age of sloppy negotiations and lazy language. <laughs> this, the, the exactitude and care and sincerity and delicacy within is truly a work of art, this book. It is available for sale. Please queue up, um, ask Brian more questions. You're here, right? You're happy to sign books? I'm certainly happy to sign everything if it's not nailed down. Yeah, it's I been a pleasure. Brian Dillon. Thank you very much. Matt. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.